I'm Dr. Sarah Hales-Britton. I'm Luke Patrick. And I'm Sam Siegel. And welcome to the season one finale of Greased Lightning, a podcast where we talk about myth and history and movies and see what we can learn. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, a season finale? I know. It's wild. Incredible stuff, really. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and to celebrate this season finale, I sent each of you guys something um, in the mail this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so Luke has opened his. Sam, you have not opened yours. Um, so Sam is going <laughs> to open not. his na- on air. And uh, Luke, I'm going to request okay. a dramatic reenactment of the moment you opened yours. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I sort of jumped so, the gun. Apologies on that. I kind of forgot that we were going to do it on air and got very excited to have a little gift. No worries. No worries. Uh, so, Sam, as you're opening that, um, I will just mm-hmm. explain. Um, we've been doing Grease Lightning Points this whole season, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I have been loosely keeping track. Oh! But very, but very loosely. Uh, and I decided... You oh both have, god. you have equal. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's a little ribbon. <laughs> I, I decided that you guys have equal grease lighting points in my heart, so you both get a blue ribbon. <laughs> Aww. Oh, they're so cute. so sweet. I love this. So- I want to pin it to myself and wear it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm. Hey. It does kind of just hang on my shirt, so this is this is what I'm doing for the episode. That's, I mean, that's the beauty of wool. I did knit these little ribbons, uh, it, so incredible. Yeah, I mean, like so beautiful. They're they're absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. I did yeah, open thank it. You. When I opened it, my dramatic rea- reenactment might go something like, "Oh my god, this is so cute." So something something like that. I love this so much. <laughs> I'm I'm hosting a conference in like a month and I'm start I'm wondering now can I pin this to my to my suit and have no one ask questions about it cuz the minute they do then I have to explain my side <laughs> projects and I don't want anyone I work with to know about them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a gambit. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. You could make up something else that GL stands for. It's a good luck ribbon. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My friend knit me a good luck ribbon. Uh, oh, wait. One better. It's a G. Gordon Liddy ribbon. <laughs> you know, everyone's favorite Watergate criminal, G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a deep cut from history that's uh, mm-hmm. a different flavor of history than we usually do on this podcast. Yeah. It is, yeah. I just the love the idea of... history of Watergate. Mm-hmm. I just love being like a big, like, Gordon Liddy stan <laughs> at a conference. That's that's a real choice. I don't know if that's better or worse than telling your coworkers about your side projects. Definitely worse. <laughs> it says way more about me as a person. Uh, if I'm like, oh, yeah, love G. Gordon Liddy. 
and that's why I had a friend knit me uh, a little ribbon that has his initials on it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but strangely enough, we're not here to talk about uh, my favorite historical figure, G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> um, Sarah, I'm, I'm actually curious, what is your relationship like with Alexander the Great? My relationship with Alexander the Great. Um, I don't know exactly when I um, like found out who Alexander the Great was. I guess probably mm-hmm. sometime in like it was probably like high school world history um, is where I learned who Alexander the Great was. Um, I this world history um, in high school was about the time that I got really interested in. Um, the the classics and ancient greek history and things like that um you know besides like what i knew from disney hercules uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> when i started actually reading about it um so i guess that's where it started but to be perfectly honest alexander the great is one of those historical figures that like i know about because i need to know about him and he is a very interesting person but most of his uh like most of what there is to learn about Alexander the Great and like his historical importance is military history. And Mm -hmm. um, that's never been my thing. I've just always had a hard time with military history. Um, I just don't care about battle formations. Mm. I don't really care about weaponry. It's cool. It's interesting for about two minutes to me. And then I want to move on. So um, Alexander the Great is one of those figures that I like, oh yeah, I know that he fought a battle at Galgamela. I know he fought a battle at the Granicus. I I roughly know, like, how his campaign went, mm-hmm. but only roughly. And frankly, mm. we could spend days, like, if we wanted to go through the details of his military campaign and everything that he did in his life, we'd be here for days. So um, this is going to be a real quick, like, thumbnail sketch version of what Alexander the Great did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not going to be getting in the weeds today at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. How about you guys? Luke? Uh... Yeah. Ending on a high note here, uh, as far as my knowledge of the thing we're talking about, because folks, uh, I think I mentioned it on the podcast before, but I am famous for reading big, chunky biographies. And mm-hmm. I kind of thought I'd read one on Alexander. But I think what happened is that I read a like 1300 page biography of Napoleon and I think in that book they gave a whole lot of backstory and context on Alexander because Napoleon idolized him and Mm. like studied his battle formations and like really he was trying to replicate what Alexander had done um, just using France instead of Macedonia as like the home base and etc um so i actually know like quite a bit about alexander the great uh but it's all sort of loose and sketchy so i'm very excited to get a more comprehensive look at it and uh, kind of what you're talking about sarah i think most of what i know about him is like battles and Mm -hmm. i don't really know a whole lot about his personal life outside of uh maybe his significant relationship uh that i imagine we'll be talking about later um yeah that's that's it sam what do you you got going on could i draw you both into my dark dusty video game corner (laughs) 
<laughs> God damn Son it. of a bitch. <laughs> it wouldn't be the finale without Sam's video game corner. Mm-hmm. And no one can give me shit because I'm wearing my Grease Lightning Point ribbon. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to bring you back to... 2006. Okay. Fuck me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The game is Rise and Fall Civilizations at War. And it is, honestly, kind of an interesting video game because it is both a real-time strategy game, so, like, kind of think top-down, like, building bases, like, managing units and all that, and a third-person action game because what you can do is you build a hero. And there are, I want to say, three different, uh, like, civilizations that you can play as. There's um, uh, the Ancient Greeks, Ancient Romans, or Persians. And I don't know that there's another one. Uh, Egyptians. That's the other. And you each civilization has two hero units. So you build a hero unit, and that's the person who you can play as in third person. Hmm. And for the ancient Greeks, it was Alexander the Great. Nice. Pretty sure. Okay. I, I now need to double check that. Because I'm pretty sure it was... Um, yeah, it was Alexander the Great and... Uh, I want to say Achilles for the ancient Greeks. I know all of y'all really care about this. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> um, really invested, Sam. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, for Persia, it was Memnon and Gilgamesh. Okay. Uh, The ancient Egyptians were Cleopatra and I do not recall, and then the Romans was Octavian and someone else. Okay, nice. So, uh, I, I remember very little, except that you could do that and you could be on boats and that was fun, and, uh, that one of Alexander's special skills was that he had learned Greek fire from Aristotle, so he shot fire arrows. What the f... <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Sarah, it was, it was 2006. We were still learning a lot about classics back then, I I'm pretty sure. learned Greek fire. What, is that, what does that fucking mean? Like, <laughs> fire's the same in every fire fucking arrows. country. Oh my god. Well, I, now, hold on. I thought Greek fire was this, like, weird special sort of napalm shit that they came up with that couldn't be put out by water. Uh, you got me there, man. I have no idea. Oh. That's yeah, what we're no, going to have to look up. I think that was a... Well, okay, well. That could, well. Be, that could be a Sam's video game corner specific piece of ancient Greek knowledge that maybe no, doesn't I, exist outside of I Sam's I think it was a real corner. thing. Yeah, no, Greek fire was an incendiary weapon used by the Eastern Roman Empire beginning A.D. 672, so definitely within the bounds of what we're talking about. <laughs> Don't you love a discipline where these two things are a thousand years apart, but we're like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all in the same boat. <laughs> he learned it from Aristotle. Uh, yeah, oh consisted God. of a combustible compound emitted by a flame-throwing weapon used to set enemy ships on fire. Some historians said it could be ignited on contact with water and was probably based on naphtha, naphtha, whatever, and quicklime. Cool. So, yeah. I like okay. the idea that Aristotle was like, hey, kid, you want to learn how to make napalm? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Honestly. What's up, kid? Like- I, th- I think you're destined for good shit. 
how about some napalm? <laughs> I mean, of all the ancient, like, people that you could go back and talk to, meet, whatever, Aristotle is rock bottom on the list. He is a piece of shit. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. God, slander this man, please. Yeah, s- spicy <laughs> takes okay. here. I have read very little Aristotle because, as we have established, I am a bad classicist. Um, Mm -hmm. I have read very little Aristotle, and I absolutely hated what I did have to read. Um, So I have no interest in (laughs) anything he has to say. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (sighs) But So um, that game is a lot of what I know about Alexander, which is to say basically nothing. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, um, I'm very excited to talk about Alexander then. Um, This is going to be good. He's, you know, Alexander the Great is one of those people you can't study uh, like European history or ancient history without hearing his name, knowing a little bit about him. Um, Mm -hmm. As I think we've, we've pretty much established like, oh, we, we know the general contours of his life. You know, he was this like really remarkable military leader um, and like died very young. But um, we're going to we're going to sort of do the thumbnail sketch of his life and his personality. But we need to back up a little bit and talk about his dad, Philip, in order to understand like him and how he was able to do this like crazy conquest of um, Western Asia. So we're going to look at Philip, and then we're going to look at um, Alexander himself. Um, okay. In terms of sources, there were primary sources on Alexander's life written by the people who knew him. So in, mm-hmm. in the movie we watched this week, Alexander, the the movie is sort of framed by Ptolemy like dictating this memoir of his time with Alexander, right? Um, Ptolemy did. We know Ptolemy wrote a biography of Alexander, later on in his life, um, as did a couple of the other generals who had um, lived and worked with him. All of these primary sources have been lost. However, Mm. we do have other, like later but still ancient biographies, so 100, 200 years after Alexander's death. We have those, and those have have survived, um, and we know that they were drawing very heavily on these eyewitness accounts of Alexander's life. So we do have ancient sources. We just don't have eyewitness sources anymore. Um, if that makes sense. Um, we also know (laughs) that Alexander took a historian with him on campaign. His name was Callisthenes. So this is one of the other eyewitness accounts. Um, this professional historian who traveled with the army because Alexander was like anticipating his future status as greatest general of all time and like wanted his, military exploits to be recorded in real time as accurately as possible. <laughs> uh, so so we had these biogra- these like eyewitness biographies. We had Callisthenes, the professional historian. Um, but then among these later biographies, um, the one of the big ones is by this guy named Quintus Curtius Rufus, who lived in the first century CE. Um, there's if you're interested in the like the the details of the military campaign, this guy named Arian is your best bet. He's writing um, maybe 150, 200 years after Alexander's death. Um, he, uh, oh, sorry, no, CE, not 
not BCE. I can read my notes. Um, <laughs> Arian is CE. So this is like significantly later. Um, but he wrote a really detailed history of the military campaign. And he based a lot of his work on Ptolemy's memoir. So that's a good source okay. if you're interested in the military. I would say the most accessible ancient biography is by Plutarch. Um, and this is the one that I love. Plutarch is near and dear to my heart. Um, and it's really interesting. So Plutarch lived in the first century CE. He's a Greek living under the early Roman Empire, right? He's from, he's from this town named Boeotia in Greece, but he taught in Rome. Uh, he was buddies with Trajan, the emperor, a very prolific, very wonderful writer. Um, I highly recommend <laughs> Plutarch's works. Like all of his works are very interesting. Um, his biggest project is called the parallel lives. So he wrote these short biographies of major figures in history and he paired them up one Greek with one Roman and he writes a biography mm. of each one. And then he has a little comparison at the end talking about how these figures are alike and different. Um, so for example, he's got a pair that's Demosthenes, the great Greek orator paired up with Cicero, the great Roman orator. And mm. he like has, uh, discusses them. Um, the first biography he writes is Alexander the great. And Alexander is paired with Julius Caesar. Um, okay. As always uh, with ancient texts, even when it's mostly complete, we occasionally have problems with textual transmission. So a page or two was destroyed somehow or lost or the bookworms ate through it. Um, so we have the biographies of Alexander and Julius Caesar, but we don't have the little comparison at the end where he talks about mm. the two of them together. So that's a shame because those are always really fun. He always has some sort of like moral lesson that he draws from these. Um, but, uh, but it's really interesting. And he's, he explicitly says at the beginning of Alexander's biography, I'm not writing a history. I'm writing a life. And he said, in, this is okay. This is a quote from the translation in the most illustrious deeds. There is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice. Nay, a slight thing, like a phrase or a jest, often makes a greater revelation of character than battles where thousands fall. So he's not giving like a detailed military history of Alexander's campaign. He's looking at the man himself and trying to discern his character. Mm. Um, okay. So that's Plutarch is going to be um, probably your your most accessible ancient source and the most fun to read and the one that I. Read. I mean, I looked at other stuff, but that's the the one that I actually like reread while we were um, getting ready to do this episode. But first, Philip, <laughs> Philip the second of yes. Macedon. He's king of Macedon. Um, we are in the year three fifty nine BCE, so this is about forty five years from the end of the Peloponnesian War when Sparta beat Athens. Um, we've we've skipped ahead about forty five years. Philip II becomes king of Macedon. Macedon is just north of Greece. It's very rich in natural. Oh yes, Sam. I sorry. I I don't I don't know how to ask questions, so I just raise my <laughs> hands now. Um, <clears throat> I I have a question. Okay. Because I I've heard it both. Is it Macedon or Macedon? Because I'm I'm always scared to say it wrong. Yeah. Um. I mean, it would have been a kappa in ancient writing. So they probably would, they would have said Macedon. Okay. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I feel like unless you are in Greece now, people You're just Macedon. People pronounce it Macedon. Yeah. Okay. And then that's my thinking. It is it is it Philip, like, because that doesn't it doesn't feel like a super Greek name to me. Oh, it is though. Philippos is a Greek word, and it means lover of horses. Oh. Okay. Yeah, okay. Hippos is horse, and Phil is the Philos or Philae is Greek is um, Greek for love. So Philippos gets smushed together to be horse lover. Okay. So okay. if you're if you're Philip at home, today you learned that your name means lover of horses. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. There you go. Good yeah. shit. Yeah. The root of every word is Greek. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh so yeah um so macedon it's north of greece it's much richer in natural resources like timber precious metals things like that but it's also much colder than greece uh the cities mm-hmm. are not as well fortified um so it's sort of like a, a wild land if you from the greek perspective um but in the same way that like Greeks look at Persians and they're like, oh, soft boys. Um, that's how the Macedonians look at the Greeks. They look down <laughs> on Greeks as soft who because they can't handle like Macedon's harsher natural conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, Macedonian politics are quite volatile up until the up until Philip II. The the general nation of Macedon has never been united enough to be a threat on the international stage. They're too busy fighting amongst themselves. Kings get assassinated a lot. So kingship is um, very political and it's a lot about like putting down your enemies and sort of like trying to build coalitions. It's not what we think about in terms of modern kingship. Um, so Philip has to... Um, eliminate his rivals and sort of consolidate support among the nobles in order to gain the power that he does. So he's politically savvy. Um, He claims descent from Heracles. So that's a thing. Um, He starts out as actually king regent. His brother was king and was killed in battle. Brother has an infant son. Infant son, obviously, is the rightful king, but can't rule yet. So Philip is regent for his nephew. Mm -hmm. But he convinces the nobles to recognize him as the king instead of the baby. Um, and then he, he like really revamps the Macedonian army, teaches them new techniques, um, introduces things like the Sarissa, which is this like super long two-handed pike that uh, mm-hmm. we see in the movie. That's Philip. Um, then he goes into diplomacy overload and bribery overload um, to convince <laughs> the Northern Greek states to recognize him gets himself to be elected the leader of this confederacy of Thessaly, which is this like northern Greek region. So mm-hmm. he's consolidating power. Um, things are going really well for him. He's like he's starting to dominate Greece um, and he's talking a really big game about invading Persia as like a punishment or revenge for the Peloponnesian Wars. We are like 150 years from the Peloponnesian Wars at this point, but mm. it's still such a like key, 
cultural uniting thing in Greece and like Macedon and Greek cult Macedonian and Greek culture are similar enough that like Philip can draw on this as like this was an insult to all of us and so we need to go revenge the Persians um mm. things are going fairly well for him until he is assassinated <laughs> in the year 336 Alexander is about 20 years old um when Philip is assassinated and so Alexander um is recognized on the spot as king. Um, this is a big deal because it's not super clear at the time, like before Philip's death, it's not clear whether Alexander is actually going to be recognized as his heir or if new baby son from mm -hmm. a later wife is going to be recognized as Philip's heir. So it's a big deal that Alexander is like recognized as his heir on the spot. He consolidates support among the nobles, just like Philip did. Um, pretty quickly puts down um, resistance by uh, having all of his rivals to the throne assassinated, including baby brother. Mm. Um, mm. So so this is the thing. Um, there's, there's some interesting stories about Alexander's birth. So we're going to back up just a little bit. Plutarch tells these stories. This is this is very common with heroes and great men, uh, big figures from myth, right? There's often some sort of like dramatic story about their birth. So we get that about Alexander as well. Philip is his father. His mother is named Olympias, um, and she's a Greek. Um, she dreams the night before her and Philip's wedding that her womb is struck by lightning. Lightning, of course, is a symbol of Zeus. A little bit later on, Philip dreams that he is putting a seal on her womb with the figure of a lion. So the, the seers tell Philip that this seal with a lion means that she is pregnant with a son who will be lion-hearted. Um, mm. There's also some, like, some stories that he sees a serpent like stretched out next to Olympias while she's sleeping, which makes him think that maybe there's a god sleeping with her. So he's like a little wary of Olympias after this. Um, so it's basically it's a whole lot of allegations of maybe divine impregnation, and Philip isn't actually his biological father. Um, Olympias we know was a member of this like particular cult of Dionysus that used that did a lot of snake handling. Okay, um, and so sweet logical Plutarch <laughs> tells us like maybe there's another explanation for this besides divine impregnation uh, you know the rites of Dionysus were very popular with the women in this area Olympias used to handle tame snakes all the time as part of these rituals so mm -hmm. you know maybe this story of Olympias the snake handler just got blown out of proportion maybe she didn't actually sleep with a giant snake um, but we'll let you listeners decide what you want to think about that um <laughs> Uh, so throughout Alexander's life, he's got this vision of himself as the new Achilles. Achilles is his favorite hero. He wants to be just like him. Um, allegedly, he sleeps with a copy of the Iliad and a dagger under his pillow every night, even as an adult, like all through his campaign. He's got the Iliad and a dagger under his pillow. Do y'all not do that? I was gonna say that's uh, that's what people recommend these days. Get mm -hmm. your eight hours of solid sleep, copy the Iliad, <laughs> and a big old knife, lavender yeah. pillow, and a knife, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and a copy of uh, the Iliad. 
Yeah. Or in in my case, you um, have a copy of G. Gordon Liddy's autobiography <laughs> and a handgun. Son of a bitch. Just just <laughs> right right under that pillow. <laughs> The modern Alexander, Sam Siegel. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I am uh, in my 30s and I've conquered nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I was about was... to say I've conquered my anxiety, but even then, no. <laughs> Not really. Oh. <laughs> I mean, who among us has? I know. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this uh, this is what Alexander does. He associates himself with Achilles from a very early age. Um, apparently, when he it seems like this started when he was little because his tutor used to call him Achilles and called himself the tutor Phoenix. Um, and Phoenix is Achilles' like old mentor in the mm-hmm. Iliad. Um, and then when Alexander gets a little bit older, Philip employs Aristotle the Athenian philosopher to be his tutor. So um, we, I think we have, or at least I think maybe we don't have, we don't have the letters, but I think we have quotations maybe uh, from like correspondence between Alexander and Aristotle that Alexander would like write back home when he was a little bit older, Mm. uh, when he was on campaign. Um, Because it's in the movie, I want to tell you the story of the taming of Bucephalus. Uh, So Philip um, gets this horse brought to him. The horse is totally wild and untamable. Alexander is a young boy at this point. Um, not Philip, not any of the professionals. Nobody can like get this horse under control. So they're just going to get rid of it. And Alexander like keeps complaining about, gosh, what a shame. They're going to lose this magnificent animal just because of their own lack of skill. He's like saying this stuff out loud where they can all hear him. And finally, (laughs) Philip is like, all right, be my guest, punk. You think you can do better? Um, and Alexander does. He tames him. <laughs> he, like, nice. Alexander nice. has been watching and, like, figures out that Bucephalus is freaking out because, like, light is reflecting off of this, like, metal thing and scaring him. And so he'd, like, like literally all he does is turn the horse and, like, get him to look another direction and get him to chill mm. out. And so he like he gains Bucephalus's trust this way, figures out what's bothering him, and and like works works through it. Um, and Bucephalus is Alexander's horse for the rest of Bucephalus's life, um, all the way through his campaign um, to like the far, the farthest point that he goes, basically um, in Pakistan. Bucephalus is his horse, um, and their buds their buds forever. Um, as Alexander grows up, he and Philip are pretty close until when Alexander is in his late teen, teens, Philip trades in Olympias for a new model. Olympias is pissed off, of course. Alexander is offended on his mother's behalf. He and Philip fight over it. This is really funny to me because Olympias is wife number four of like seven that Philip had in his life. But, uh, Anyways, this one in particular, for some reason, is, like, really bothering Olympias. So he and um, Alexander and Philip fight over it. Um, that scene in the movie where Philip is, like, gonna attack Alexander, but he's so drunk that he, like, falls off the couch. Um, and Alexander is mm-hmm. like, oh, this guy's gonna lead you into Asia? He can't even jump from one cushion to another? That's recorded in Plutarch. 
<laughs> it's like this is the fight Ooh, that they're nice. having okay. um, over oh, basically over Olympias's honor. Um, but there is some like legitimate concern here. If the new wife has a son, is that son going to supplant Alexander as the heir? So things are tense for like legitimate political reasons as well. So when Philip is assassinated, some suspicion falls on Olympias and Alexander. Nothing can be proved because it seems like the member of the guard who stabbed Philip had some like personal animus against him, like some sort of personal insult that happened. So, you know, it's hard to tell, but Olympias is under suspicion um, basically for the rest of her life. People wonder if she had something to do with this. Um, so this is in 336. Alexander is about 20 years old and he inherits the kingdom of Macedon. A significant portion of Greece takes this as an opportunity to rebel against the alliance that Philip had built. But Alexander basically blitzkriegs his way through Macedon and Greece and very quickly subdues the, most of Greece. He's generally a, a pretty generous conqueror. And he's, he doesn't do a whole lot of, like, unnecessary uh, killing of civilians. However, he does make an example out of Thebes. He raises Thebes to the ground. He, oh. he like, isolates... He, when, when, the, when the city is captured, he's like, where's Pindar's family? Pindar is this very famous Greek poet who was from Thebes. Lived significantly before Alexander. But he's like, where are Pindar's descendants, please? Pindar's family comes out and he's like, I like Pindar. Y'all can go. They go. Everybody else is sold into slavery from Thebes. This is like 30,000 people. So he like, Jesus. he does this. I know it's horrible, but he does this early on as an example of like, if you cross me, this is what I will do. Like, I will be a very generous conqueror and ruler. And like, you can pretty much do what you want. As long as you like recognize me and pay me taxes, I'm going to, I'm going to be fine with you. You do whatever you want, but you cross me, I will fuck you up. Mm. So, and, and there is, um, there's evidence that like later on in his life, he kind of regrets this. Like he's, he's haunted by what he did to Thebes. But he does it again <laughs> to other cities. <laughs> so you know how Philip, his father, claims descent from Heracles? This very much feels like a Heracles thing to me of like, really fuck some people up and then later feel bad about it, but then do it again mm -hmm. and then feel bad about that. And like, <laughs> this is just how he goes. Um so remember how I said Philip had been planning to lead this like joint Greek Macedonian invasion of Persia. Yes. Alexander is now the leader of this movement. Alexander takes this up as a thing that we can do. Probably for Philip and Alexander both, it's less about revenge on the Persians and more about let's keep the army busy so they don't revolt against me. Uh, <laughs> and let's get some gold. <laughs> so, mm. um, there's, they set out on this uh, expedition in 334. This is when Alexander's Eastern campaign begins. He's 22. He's got like 30, 40,000 infantry troops, somewhere between three and 5,000 cavalry. So this is a big army. He only had provisions for about 30 days. And oh. he was just like, before they left, he was just like giving away all of his property. He also had not married and produced an heir yet. So like his line is not secure. If he dies, there's going to be chaos again over who becomes king. 
but he just doesn't care. He's just like sort of bumbling into this. And somebody finally said like, he, you know, he's giving away all of his property. He, somebody's like, King, what are you leaving for yourself? And he says, my hopes. <laughs> oh shit. Can you believe this fucking guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's some battles. Um, but his first stop is at Ilium, Troy, basically mm. to be a tourist. Um, he puts garlands on Achilles' grave marker. He and his friends like run a race, a foot race, past the grave marker. He tours the city. He's just fanboying um, mm-hmm. Homer, basically, and Achilles. Um, and he's really excited. Um, like I said, we're not going to do all the major battles. Um, suffice it to say, he wins them all. Um, it takes several major major battles to finally defeat Persia. Um, Darius the third is the great king of Persia at this point. And in every battle, first battle, he doesn't even show up. He just sends his like underlings to go fight. And Achilles, of course, beats them immediately. Battles number two and three, Darius does show up. But as soon as it looks like he's in danger, he flees mm-hmm. the battlefield. Um, so it takes a while for them to finally track down Darius. And Alexander, to his great regret, doesn't actually get to be the one to kill him. Darius's own people like some of his own um, satraps assassinate him and leave him for dead. And Alexander and his men just like find him like Mm. in the middle of nowhere dead. Um, But it does it. Part of the reason it takes so many battles to defeat Persia is because Persia is fucking enormous and it's incredibly rich in resources, including manpower. And, you know, Alexander's army is limited. So it just takes them a long time to do this, but they do like, slowly march all the way from um, Asia Minor, so west coast of Turkey, all the way across Western Asia. So we're talking about, like, he, he dips down into Egypt for a little bit. We're talking Palestine. We're talking Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. They go all the way to Pakistan. They're Jesus. in the Punjab when the army finally mutinies. So Mm -hmm. they literally walk across Asia. They just march and fight their way across Asia over a period of eight years. Damn. Yeah. Um, There are some, like, fun things that happen here. So he goes to the town of Gordium. If you've heard of the Gordian Knot, uh, Mm -hmm. this is, uh, this was like, I think not. Maybe it was a wonder of the ancient world. I can't remember. But there's like this rope tied up in the world's most convoluted knot. And so it's known as the Gordian knot. And the legend is that whoever can loose this knot will rule Asia. Well, Alexander doesn't try to actually like untie it. He pulls his sword out and chops through it. And he's like, there, I did it. (laughs) Nice. There you go. (laughs) So um, there's that. When, When Darius flees, I think it's Galgamela, uh... It's traditional that for the Persian royal women to travel with the army when they go out to battle. So the queen mm-hmm. and her daughters are all there with Darius and the army during this battle. Darius flees, leaves the women to fucking fend for themselves. So they're captured by Alexander. Apparently, he treats them with the utmost respect. Like, he, he's like, you're royal. I'm going to treat you like you're royalty. Like, and he's, he's doesn't let anyone mess with them. Um, he gives them like whatever they want. He's, he's very, very respectful, which is not something that they were expecting 
from their conqueror and their captor. So they are like super grateful. Um, and uh, I mean, Darius also like has huge respect for this as well um, and ends up feeling kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> they event he eventually like ransoms them back from Alexander. Um, and apparently Darius then spends like two years trying to convince Alexander to settle with him through diplomacy. Alexander basically says Asia is not big enough for the both of us and there can only be one king of Asia. So um, he defeats Darius at the Battle of Galgamela. Um, Darius flees, but then is murdered. This is the end of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. The Achaemenid dynasty has been in power for hundreds of years. This is it. Darius is the end of it. And Alexander is now the ruler of Persia. As he goes, he gains more and more money, more and more uh, spoils of war, more land, and he is extremely generous and constantly giving these things away. He sends a lot back to his mother in Macedon, but he gives stuff away to his generals and his advisors, and he gets much more angry when people refuse to accept his gifts than he does when people, like, ask him for stuff. He'd rather people just hmm. come out and ask him, and he'll give them whatever they want. If they're like, oh, no, I can't accept, he gets real pissed off. So he's, like, aggressively generous. <laughs> with everything that he hmm. has and doesn't keep very much for himself. Um, he could though, as we've said, be pretty hot headed. Um, he kills his general Clytus. Um, Clytus is, is Alexander's friend, but he's from Philip's generation. So he's been around for quite a while. Um, they get in a drunken argument in about 328, and Alexander stabs him with like a javelin. Um, and is like immediately remorseful and grieves, grieves quite a bit for Clytus um, after he's after he's done this. Um, so, you know, don't get drunk and fight with Alexander. Uh, <laughs> he had a temper. Um, mm -hmm. As he's going, he's founding cities. They're all named Alexandria. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Alexandria in northern Egypt is the big one. Um, this is pretty early on in his campaign when he goes to Egypt um, and he visits the shrine of Amun-Ra. Allegedly at the shrine, he receives confirmation that he is in fact the son of Zeus. Also that Zeus and Amun-Ra are one and the same God. So okay. there's a lot of imagery of Alexander um, in Egypt that like explicitly associates him with Amun-Ra um, at this time. So, so this is, like I said, this is pretty early on in his campaign. So throughout the Persian conquest, he's seeing himself as like, he's received confirmation that he is the son of Zeus. And this is like part of what's really driving him. Um, he was a formidable fighter. He was not one of those kings who sits at the back. He led his men and often like dove headlong into battle with sort of no regard for his own safety. Um, Again, crazy for a man who has not reproduced and secured his line. <laughs> um, but he is mm -hmm. more than willing to share all the hardships of his soldiers. And this is part of why everyone loves him and follows him thousands of fucking miles across the entire Asian continent, practically. Uh, mm -hmm. Because he's right there with them. Um, he almost gets himself killed first thing, the very first major battle with Persia. And it's actually Clytus who saves his life. Somebody's coming up and going to stab him. And Clytus cuts the guy's arm off before he's able to stab Alexander. So he's, he's very much in the thick of it all the time. Um, in 329, 
they've reached Bactria, which is modern-day northern Afghanistan. And when he gets there, he marries the local princess, Roxana, to help secure the loyalty of the local army. Um, later on, when he's on his, he's gone out, he's on his way back across Western Asia, um, he also marries one of King Darius's daughters. But the first wife is this, like, Afghani princess from Bactria. Mm. Um, so, so it's eight years of campaign pressing across Western Asia. They have this battle at the Hydaspes, um, which is in the Punjab in um, modern-day Pakistan. It's the closest Alexander ever comes to defeat um, in 326. He is almost mortally wounded. He's, he's He suffers some pretty significant wounds at this battle. Um, Bucephalus does suffer fatal wounds. So Bucephalus dies shortly after um, the Battle of the Hydaspes and gets a great big funeral. Um, it's not very long after this. The army presses on to the Hyphasis River, and uh, this is just over the western border of India, and this is where the army revolts. Up till this point, this has happened before. Like, the army has said, we're not going any further. And Alexander has always been able to basically shame them into going on. He can't do it anymore. This is it. This is the final mutiny. And he's like, mm -hmm. fine. We'll turn around. Like, we're going to go south so I can see the ocean. But then we will, like, head back up west and we will stop pressing <laughs> east. We're going to head back toward home now. Um, he picks the wrong way home. He takes them mm -hmm. through this massive desert. And because it's like as the crow flies, right? It's the shortest route back to Babylon. It was definitely not the right route back to Babylon. Uh, temperatures have been recorded in the 120s Fahrenheit in this desert. Um, Fuck. A huge chunk of his army dies of heat and thirst. Um, but again, Alexander is beloved by the troops because he shares in their hardships. There's a story told uh, that during this march through the desert, somebody like gets a helmet full of water and brings it to Alexander. And rather than take water himself when no one else can, he pours it on the ground. Mm. And this gesture is apparently very touching to the soldiers. And so like they're, they're willing to keep going with him and, and um, stay strong through this desert. Um, Seems like a fucking stupid thing to do to me, but, um, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so on the way back, his, his very best friend and very likely lover, Hephaestion, dies. Um, seems like it was probably typhoid fever. Um, Alexander and Hephaestion had grown up together. Um, other people, as well as Hephaestion and Alexander compared their relationship to Achilles and Patroclus. Um, Hephaestion was um, officially a member of Alexander's bodyguard, but he also did a lot of like engineering work on Alexander's campaign. So like dealing with all the military infrastructure that happens on a march like this. Um, eventually Alexander made him like officially his second in command. So Hephaestion died in 324. Um, What's recorded in the ancient sources is that he'd had a fever for a week, but he was, it seemed like he was on the mend. The doctor had told him, well, Alexander's like out at these games. And the doctor was like, don't drink any wine. Don't eat very much. Like we're, you're still recovering. Let's just take this slow. Doctor leaves. Hephaestion's like, 
I don't know. I feel fine. And so he, he orders a big dinner, drinks a bunch of wine. Typhoid fever apparently causes like intestinal perforations. Mm. So like eating all this and drinking all this food just goes out places where it's not supposed to go. So Hephaestion probably like went septic and died very quickly because he, he seemed to be on the mend and then it was like instant decline. Um, what's really sad to me about this is that Alexander is like out at these games and has to be called back to Hephaestion. They're like, no, he's, this is really bad. You need to get here now. So Alexander like runs back to where Hephaestion is, um, has been recuperating. He doesn't make it in time. Hephaestion Mm -hmm. is dead by the time Alexander gets to his bedside. Um, Alexander goes crazy with grief. Like literally he's so overwhelmed. Um, he, throws this just insanely expensive funeral thousands of talents we're talking hundreds of millions of today's dollars spent on this funeral for Hephaestion um he was still planning monuments for Hephaestion when he himself died eight months later um he gets Hephaestion divine honors like he just goes all out and for days and days he like he's just sitting on the ground he won't say a word he's just weeping he's screaming and crying It, it like affects him profoundly um and therefore affects everyone around him very profoundly. And he only survives Hephaestion by about eight months. Um, in 323, Alexander himself dies in Babylon, um, which uh, is in modern-day Iraq. Um, he's 32 or 33 years old at this point. Um, of course, the details of his death are unknowable at this uh, distance. We know that he had a fever, it seems likely that he made this worse by drinking wine instead of water. Now, mm. water was often of questionable quality in antiquity, but still. Um, for a long time, typhoid fever was the primary explanation, again. Um, there were, of course, lots of accusations of poisoning after the fact, because he was so young and in his prime. Um, I read an article a few years ago uh, about a new theory of what killed Alexander. Um, I So I actually read an article about the article. The real article is behind a paywall and I haven't mm. paid for it yet. Um, I might though. So it's written by this woman named Dr. Catherine Hall. She thinks, rightly so, that none of the explanations that have been put forward fully explain Alexander's death. She mm-hmm. believes he actually died of this thing called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, this is gonna get grim. Okay. So what we know about Alexander's death, he had fever, he had abdominal pain, and he had progressive, um, he, his body did not decay for six full days after his death. Now, in antiquity, this is seen as a sign of divine parentage, that his mm-hmm. body stayed perfectly preserved for, so, for like almost a full week before it started to decay. Um, Guillain-Barre syndrome causes fever, abdominal pain, and progressive paralysis that moves up the body. Mm. But you remain sound of mind, you remain conscious, and without confusion up until the moment of actual death. So um, the pulse was known to exist at this point in antiquity. It had been discovered already in Alexandria, but um, it hadn't like been fully, it wasn't commonly understood. People didn't use the pulse to see if people were alive at this time. We really depended on breath as the sign of life. Um, So with this paralysis moving up Alexander's body, lowered oxygen demands of his body, 
his breathing would have been so shallow that it would have been really difficult to detect. And if his pupils became fixed because of this paralysis, it would have been very easy for people to think he was dead when he actually was not dead yet. So it seems like the most likely explanation is that his bo- it's not that his body took six days to start decomposing. It's that he was alive for six more days when everyone around him thought he was dead. So he might have been conscious and like witnessing things happening at his deathbed and like the fights that started to break out and the mourning that was taking place around him. Fuck. Yeah, that's brutal. It's fucking horrifying. I mean, Mm -hmm. what a what a just absolutely nightmarish way to die. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense. I mean, this is an explanation that like ties together all the stories about his illness and his death. Obviously, it's impossible to like diagnose someone in history. Like that gets really tricky uh, because of the way things were described in different time periods and and the different symptoms that were or were not recognized. Um, mm-hmm. But this is an explanation that does actually pretty much make sense of all the different symptoms that are described in the ancient texts. Uh, but it sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sucks the big one. Um, so, so Alexander has this potentially really awful death. Um, there is no clear successor while he is still able to speak. They're asking him like, who do, who do you want to give your kingdom to? Who do you, who should inherit? Who should take over your role? And he says, uh, it goes to the strongest. Helpful. Um, <laughs> so obviously wars break out. Roxana is pregnant when Alexander dies, but she has not actually yet given birth. She does eventually give birth to a son. But there, because she's still pregnant, there's no clear successor. No legitimate heirs. Um, allegedly, Roxana, like after Alexander dies, she kills his second wife just to make sure there won't be like, in case she is like pregnant and doesn't know it yet. Um, and so that her child will be the only legitimate heir. If it's a boy, um, the generals go to war almost immediately. Um, in the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death and by immediate, I mean like 15 to 20 years. Um, there's all of these wars and eventually the, uh, giant empire that he has built, through Western Asia, North Africa, Greece, and Macedon, pretty much gets split up into three parts. So Ptolemy takes Egypt, um, this guy named Antigonus and his son take Greece and Macedon, and Seleucus takes most of Western Asia, like pretty much all of Persia. Um, And so the Seleucid Empire actually remains a pretty formidable force down through Roman times. Um, And so this is what happens. Uh, and it, it does take a while for Alexander's son to be eliminated. Um, Roxana, it seems that Roxana and Olympias work together for a little while to try to protect Alexander's son so that when he grows up, he can sort of take his place as Alexander's successor. But um, the Antigonids who have taken over Macedon and Greece, they eventually do murder Roxana and her son. So there is no Alexander bloodline, um, at least not a legitimate Alexander bloodline. Uh, and 
And that's the end of Alexander the Great. That was a lot of information. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at my little timestamp here. <laughs> now, uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong. They also don't know where he's entombed, right? That's right. Yeah. Because um, he went to... So th this is a little bit that I know, um, I think, from a combination of Assassin's Creed Origins, I, I know, uh, and also from a from a trip to... Alexandria in Egypt mm. um, but yeah so so they took his body to Egypt he was like mummified but then like they kind of hid the tomb is that right? Yeah I think Alexander I think this was like one of his last orders was like I don't want some big fancy tomb mm -hmm. just bury me with Hephaestion and so like he didn't actually want his tomb to be a destination spot the way that Achilles' tomb marker was in antiquity. Mm. So. Interesting. Yeah. So, now we gotta talk about the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you guys wait, thought the theme of do. this... Go for it, Luke. I, I just wanted to clarify it because uh, I did a little bit of reading around this before we jumped on. Um, so, Hephaestion. I mean... You don't ask to be buried with your best best like Sam and I, we're we're best friends. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be buried with you, Sam. Uh, hold on. Uh, <laughs> this uh, gonna change gonna change my plans a little bit. Um, but I'll, I'll adjust the old will. Yeah, my my point just being like, and especially with the comparisons to Patrocles and Achilles, like. They were lovers, right? Like, almost yes. certainly? Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. Because I, I know that, like, from what I was reading, there's, like, been historical debate, in quotes, where people want to, like, uh, buy a racer, Alexander, or whatever. So I just wanted to clarify that, like, modern, modern classical thought on this, or modern uh, thinking, is that for sure they were, they were lovers, right? Yeah, unless you are an extremely homophobic old man professor, they were lovers. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely so, were. So, in talking about the movie, I, I need to do... I, I, gotta, I gotta explain some stuff, because I did a little bit of research about this movie. Okay. There are four fucking versions of this film. Yeah. Um, there is... Uh, the theatrical cut, which is three hours long. And I believe that's the one that both of you watched. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. Okay. Then there's the director's cut, which, I, I, as I learned, under no circumstances should you ever watch. And this is because, apparently, director Oliver Stone removed all the homoerotic bits between Alexander and Hephaestion because... They made Oliver's teenage son uncomfortable. So fucking coward. So yeah. I want. I don't know where you read this, Sam. I tried to find it. Uh -huh. I have. I have an alternative theory. Okay, it was. To... It was on Reddit. So okay. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds like there was a group of like twenty-three Greek lawyers that wanted to sue the the Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. 
uh, for something. I don't know what you would be suing for, but basically the movie was too gay. And they were Mm. like, you're portraying Alexander in a way that is uh, not accurate. We want to sue over this. They ended up dropping the suit after they got an advanced screening. But it sounds like a, a lot of press was generated around the fact that this had a gay romance in it and so Mm -hmm. maybe oliver stone still a coward was like i'm going to remove a lot of this to just focus on he tried to he tried to punch it up make it more actiony gotcha director's cut okay so so that's our second version of the film and again consensus is don't watch it yeah (laughs) the third version confusingly is called the final cut Uh, And this is, by far, the longest version of the film. It is unrated, and it's about three and a half, maybe a little more, uh, hours long. Then, (laughs) on the 10-year anniversary of the film, so in 2014, Oliver Stone comes out with the ultimate cut. And uh, this is not unrated. It's just a three-hour and 26-minute version of the film. That is supposed to, um, kind kind of make all of it fit together better, and uh, I I guess like add more context to it. This is the version that mm. I watched, and I only watched this one because, uh, as a rule, if there's an unrated version, that is what I will gravi- gravitate towards. Um, however, unrated versions not available for rent. You have to purchase those. And I'm not owning this film. Yeah. Uh, I stand my ground there. So I rented the ultimate cut. Uh, which again, I hate that the third one's called the final cut and there is a cut after that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's I... it seems like a lot of this was Oliver Stone trying to unfuck his mess of a movie. And... Um, <laughs> having seen the ultimate cut does not achieve that goal. Mm. Ah, beans. Beans. It's just long. Yeah. That, oh my god. I just, unless you are the Lord of the Rings, don't be three and a half hours long. There's, don't even be three hours long. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, it's too much. It's way too much. Like, my husband watched this one with me and he was Mm -hmm. like, how how why is yeah. it like <laughs> so i i i started this at five in the morning and very quickly i was like i i can't do all of this in one sitting <laughs> so i got an hour and 45 minutes in so you know the length of a normal movie yeah, yeah. i stopped and then i continued it around dinner time i get maybe 10 minutes into my second sitting and there's an intermission and it made me so fucking mad for some reason that i hadn't just watched to the intermission yeah uh and then you know i watched the other hour and 45 minutes and there's a point at the end where anthony hopkins playing old ptolemy is going on and on and fucking on making me think the phrase for the first and hopefully only time, shut the fuck up, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> A rarity, for I sure. Know. Okay, and but I, truly, 
who thought that was a good way to end this movie? Oh my god, it's endless. It's mm-hmm. so, so long. And it feels like it ends like three times, just during that like lengthy monologue. And it keeps going, and at one point I paused it, probably to get mad, uh, and I noticed that there were nine minutes left, and I lost my shit. I absolutely <laughs> lost my shit. <laughs> Turns out it's actually just like seven and a half minutes of credits. Yeah. So thank God for that. Oh, that's but good. Fuck. <laughs> it's so long. It's so. Guys, it's so long. It's so long. And there's like at least 45 minutes of it that is just completely unnecessary. At hey, least. Sa- Sarah. Yeah. I watched 26 minutes more of this than you did. You did. It's like an hour that doesn't need to be here. Yeah. I cannot imagine. I almost, and I I feel like I got off easy because I almost watched the ultimate cut. At first, when I searched mm-hmm. for this, that was the only one that like the Google stick was showing me. Mm-hmm. I was like, that can't be right. And so um, husband saved the day on this one. He was like, don't just search for it. Like, go into the Prime app and then search for it. And like, then I got all the different versions, the different options, found the mm-hmm. theatrical. But that was still like the last option that it gave me. <laughs> so I came yeah. very close to doing that. And I, I got to say, I am extremely glad I didn't because it took over my entire night as it is. <laughs> yeah, no. I can't be mad at anyone other than myself because it was a conscious decision to watch the yeah. ultimate cut. I, True. I, Microsoft presented me with all of them. Uh, and I said, no, I'll do the longest one that I can rent and not purchase. <laughs> yeah, God. So, yeah, I almost did not I don't understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because the movie, as you pointed out, you're... Um, your your version was three and a half hours. Uh-huh. Uh, they have these baffling omissions where, like, in, at least in the theatrical cut. Uh-huh. He tames Bucephalus. Then they're like, yeah, then he grew up and he unified his... Well, sorry. He grew up, his dad was assassinated, he unified Greece, he did Egypt. Now he's uh, attacking Persia. And we s- jump straight to this final battle. Wait. You don't get the assassination scene? We do, but we, we get it later as a flashback. So it still does a fair amount of uh, bouncing around that way. So it's like uh, it's like current and then flashback and then current and then flashback. Um, now, do you get the backstory on the guy who uh, murdered Philip? No. Oh, okay. I did. Um, so... I got the backstory of the guy who murdered Philip. And it's it's still a little unclear kind of what was going on, but at a party, um, Philip is either, uh, content warning, sexually assaulting this guy or just spanking. But, oh, we did, we did see this. Okay. But it was not explained at all. So you'd so, have to be pretty eagle-eyed to notice that it's the gotcha. same guy. When, when like, Philip is being stabbed, it, like, flashes back to that scene where he is being spanked or otherwise humiliated yeah. in front of a crowd. Oh. And it's like, oh, that's the guy. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what the fuck else... I mean, we would have to go, like, shot for shot to figure yeah. out what 30 minutes I got. Yeah. How... 
how much Angelina Jolie did y'all get? Uh, yeah, kind of a lot. Okay. Yeah. Now, what y'all think of her performance? <sighs> I mean, she's just okay. there to be yeah, hot. Yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> and okay, and do a Russian accent. And do a Russian accent. Thank you. Okay. Sam. Okay. Thank you. Thank I'm, you. I'm glad we're here because she started speaking, and I went, "Huh." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing, the other thing that got me about this is like. Olympias was a fucking Greek. Like, she's from southwestern Greece. Why is she being Russian and like, oh, I'm a barbarian? I just don't understand. Well, Sarah, you as a classicist should know the the (laughs) Greco-Russians. I will say this. Um, This movie does something that I've been begging for with other movies, which is Mm -hmm. that you have... Irish, Australian, these are like the primary uh, offenders, but like Mm -hmm. actors that are from certain regions that are not represented in film. And for no reason, like I think we talked about Liam Neeson being Mm -hmm. Irish Zeus. Yes. And he wasn't. Why can't we have Irish Zeus? In this movie, they cast Colin Farrell and um, apparently somebody threw a shit fit about him being Irish and using an Irish accent. And so to compensate... They all the Macedonians have Irish accents, so that <laughs> yes, they just I sort of blend in. Yeah, which is it's just amazing. I we started this movie and I was like, Val Kilmer is from California, but he's <laughs> doing Irish. <laughs> like this yeah. bodes well. I was I was like fully prepared to come on and have to rant about how the real theme of this podcast is Irish actors not getting to use their accent, but it turns yes. out. It's just Irish actors is our theme now because hot damn Colin Farrell got to be Irish Alexander. It made me so happy. Yes. It's amazing. I just hate that it was this movie, but yeah, (laughs) it's a real problem. (sighs) So, okay. Um, I did notice a little Easter egg, a little Oliver Stone Easter egg. And I don't know if this is in the theatrical cut or not. During the Battle of uh, Gagamela, um, which I actually like how they handled the battle scenes in like covering different parts of the formation. Mm, yeah, because because you get like a better grasp of like, oh, this this is a massive sort of endeavor with a lot of different moving parts. So I thought that was interesting. But um, there's, I believe it's on the the Macedonian left flank. Um, things are kind of falling apart over there. And one of the, like, captains or generals or whatever is, like, he's like, they're breaking through! Back and to the left! Back and to the left! Which, of course, is a callback to 1991's JFK, where they're showing that, uh, I believe his... uh, Proving that there was another shooter because JFK's head went back and to the left. Ah... Cool job, Oliver Stone. Hmm. Hmm. And I'll tell you, I mostly know this quote from Seinfeld, where they uh, made fun of JFK by having the scene where I think Jerry was spit upon at a a baseball game. Oh, that's that's right. The second spitter. The second spitter. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Amazing. 
Amazing. Yeah, Sam, that battle um, was actually praised quite a bit by ancient historians. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was reading a little bit about the reception of the movie, and um, it had very mixed reception among classicists, as mm-hmm. all movies about ancient things do. But there were a lot of military historians who, like, just went gaga over this. Because the, the, the Battle of Gaugamela is the only one of the three big Persian battles that we get in this movie. And it kind mm-hmm. of it combines elements from all three of the big Persian battles. But a lot of military historians said, like, this is this is very faithful to what we what we know of ancient warfare and what this might have actually looked like and felt like. Hmm. Um, so so that was really cool. Um, ancient historians had really good things to say about this. Nice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, at least Ol- Oliver got one thing right. He got one thing, yeah. He got a couple of, like, small things, too. Like, there's right mm-hmm. before the battle, there's haruspicy happening, which is um, divination by reading um, the internal organs of a sacrificed animal. And we see, like, Alexander yeah. slits the bull's throat, and then the priest is, like, rummaging through the entrails. Um, that's called haruspicy. Okay. I did like that scene mostly because he's rummaging through the entrails looking like concerned, like trying yeah. to figure out like, what, what should I fucking say? Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we get like a lot of eagle omens, eagles flying over things. Mm-hmm. Eagles are a symbol of Zeus. So this is like oh. something that would have been um, noticed and drawn upon a lot by Alexander and his, um, and his seers. Um, they would be like noting all the eagles around him as like a symbol of Zeus's favor. The army, the Greek and Macedonian army, is chanting Enialus, which mm-hmm. is a by name of Ares. So they're like oh. invoking the god of war as they march forward. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like small things that uh, they they clearly did their homework on in this, which is nice to see. Um, there's also something that I thought was funny at the end of this when Alexander is dying mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, they're asking him who his successor is, and then they're whisk- they're like confused because they're like, he said to the best. No, he said to Crateros. Why would he say to Crateros? Right? And there's a general named Crateros. And they're mm-hmm. like, why why is he saying that? Um the Greek word for strong is Crateros. <laughs> so they're making a language joke um, nice. that only Greeks will get, and I love it. <laughs> of course, if he said to the strongest, it would have been to Kratisto, but whatever. Um, it still works. I still love it. <laughs> I think it's uh, great. Okay. Um, there was uh, one big thing that they got right in this movie. Um, and that was, and I hope it was in your version, but it was Colin Farrell's dick and balls. Didn't get that. Oh, (laughs) well, y'all missed out because I want, so I would say that he did full frontal, but that would be misrepresenting what happened. We got a (laughs) rear view. So he Uh, went full back. Full backwards. Um, Interesting. I'm not joking. So I paused it, of course. 
Uh, I thought about taking a photo, and then I realized what I would be taking a photo of, and I said no. Um, <laughs> but we see his dick, balls, and taint hmm. uh, as he is getting into bed to have sex with his, like, assistant? His, like, his personal servant who's Oh, Persian? yeah, that guy. Yeah. Didn't, didn't get that scene either, I don't think. Well, wow. you missed out. Uh, cause he's packing. Um, man. <sighs> okay. So there's, there's a bit in this movie where like Alexander is talking about like his, his dream of this like kingdom empire, however you want to call it. And it sounds like his dream. And I feel like this is not accurate. Sarah is to create some sort of like, post-racial society without borders it feels very like progressive it's very 2004 isn't it um Mm -hmm. it's all shit (laughs) it's all bullshit um alexander was about conquest and power for himself there he was not Mm -hmm. interested in freeing people (laughs) for crying out loud yeah that i noticed that as well and that really pissed me off yeah Uh, it was like we don't like, he can just be an interesting historical figure and a great military sure. leader. We don't need to turn him into some sort of, like, democratic hero. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's Alexander the Great, not John Kerry. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then I want to I wanna talk about the battle in, um, I've, I've, can't fucking say the name the the last battle the hidas oh, yeah yeah Hi, the hydaspes yeah okay um, yeah that battle was m- miserable right yes yes yeah, yeah. Christ, it was awful because it's a lot of animals getting hurt which i don't enjoy yeah oh no, god no and then the fucking red filter yeah it got artsy in the last that last battle that makes yeah. it impossible possible to tell what's happening yeah yeah i did not and i i feel like there's this thing that people talk about sometimes in antiquity with like this red mist that comes over heroes when they sort of like Mm -hmm. they have their moment of like crazed glory and battle right i feel like if they were going for that, that would ma- have made sense when Alexander plunged it alone. I would have been like, cute, you're sure. doing a Homeric thing. Great. But they did it after he was mortally wounded. Yeah. So it doesn't, like, I don't feel like that was an artistic choice that actually made any sense. No, 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 no. Um, I did, I did learn one thing from this terrible, terrible battle. Hmm. It does seem that, like... Through most of human history, if you've got an elephant, you're invincible. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of no good way to stop one from the looks of things. Um, I can tell you one good way to stop an elephant. I feel like I'm not going to like it. You're not going to like it. Um, It is to take... take Yes, take an African elephant and march him over the Alps in winter, which is what Hannibal did. Hannibal set out from Carthage with, like, I don't even remember how many war elephants. He had one by the time he got over the Alps and into Italy. Sort of a self-own, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I I wish I could have been there. 
when they're looking at this mountain range and he looks back at all these elephants and he looks back at the mountain range and it's like, hmm, it'll be fine. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. It's they, right up there with invading Russia in winter, right? Mm-hmm. The great military blunders of history. Yes. Hey, uh, we do all agree that this movie sucks, right? Because I, yeah, I realized balls. I didn't ask y'all. Yeah. It, there were parts of this movie that were good, and there were parts of this movie that were well done, and mm-hmm. I feel like it just, like, it killed itself by being so long. Like, if this yeah. movie had been 45 minutes to an hour shorter, I probably would have loved it. But it's so fucking long that it's just slow and boring and terrible. Yeah. Which is, it's so weird, because, like, every time Oliver came back to this to try to unfuck it, he just made it longer. Yeah. <laughs> terrible choice. Yeah. Such a bad choice. It's just too unfocused. Like, the whole movie is, is way too long. And literally, for the listener, we could chop easily an hour. It's not like we'd have to hunt for no. specific, like, oh, Mm-mm. we can get save three minutes here, we can save... Like, the whole first 30 minutes of the movie, just chuck it. It's, like, all backstory and Anthony Hopkins talking. Mm-hmm. Like, there's huge yeah. swaths that you can just get rid of. And it doesn't change the movie at all. Which is confusing why the, like, director's cut is 30 minutes longer. Well, uh, hell, talking about Anthony Hopkins, uh, like, at the end when he's doing his endless monologue, th- there's a part where he goes, ah, chuck all that. That's just yeah. ramblings. Don't do that. Don't yeah. don't have a scene where you've got a guy monologuing and then it's like, eh, that was all worthless. Yeah. It's yeah. it's very uh it's very tell not show. Mm, yes. As well as being show. <laughs> like <laughs> show. There's no tell part of that second one. It's just show. There's lots of it. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, I mean I I really feel like the entire Ptolemy old like old Ptolemy frame is only there so that Oliver Stone can like show off that he's smart and he knows there was a biography by Ptolemy like Mm -hmm. I don't see the purpose of that other than to be like a look at me I'm so smart yeah yeah um it's it's pointless I mean was there anything that y'all liked Yeah. Okay. I I like that the movie's pretty gay. It could have been gayer. Coulda. I'd say it's like a six or seven out of ten, but for a movie of this time period, um I it's pretty oblique. Like it's not um it's not hiding it at all. Mm-mm. So I, I appreciated true. that. Again, it could have been gayer. Like they could have literally said and I don't know, maybe they did in the longer version, like, oh, this is his lover or something like that. But there were lots of like, there was lots of contact um, with Jared it's, Leto. And I'll say it's pretty clear in the yes. version I got that like that they are an item. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'd say and then, yeah. Like again, the scene where I get his full back, um, it like he is climbing into bed with a man. Yeah, so we didn't get that part. Which yeah. would have been uh, pretty cool. But yeah, I just, yeah. I like that they didn't shy away from that necessarily, mm-hmm. that aspect of him as a historical figure. Um, yeah. But <laughs> that's kind of it as far as the things I really enjoyed. So I don't know, Sarah, do you do you have anything that you really liked? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 
I too liked that it was gay, but I will say every time that he and Jared Leto almost kissed and then they didn't, I did scream at the television. Yeah. Um, so my husband laughed at me a lot during this movie because I just spent the whole time saying, just kiss already. Yeah. But, yeah, 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 um, yeah. so that was, <laughs> did y'all never get a kiss? We never got a kiss between them. We, he kissed I, the, he kissed the, the Persian servant. I'm pretty sure I got a kiss. Okay. We didn't get a kiss. Uh, I think. Again, it was three and a half hours, so I don't <laughs> fully remember if I got a kiss. A lot yeah. happens. Yeah. yeah, no, we didn't get a kiss, but I would say what I, I think something that I really liked about this movie is that um, it did kind of feel like putting Plutarch on film, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So okay. they, you know, they only showed two big battles. This could have been a like fully military history. We march, we fight, we march, we fight type mm-hmm. of story of Alexander's life. And instead we got a lot of these like small anecdotes that we get in Plutarch about the kind of person that Alexander was and like small things that he said and did. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a lot of that instead. Um, and I do appreciate that. Um, trying to look at him as a, I mean, they also made shit up. He was not interested in democracy, but um, <laughs> they, they did try to sort of like paint a fuller picture of him as a, as a person with, mm-hmm depth um and i did appreciate that um the small things that they did like the haruspice uh the the persian costumes are on point (laughs) the um Mm -hmm. the macedonian arms are great the fact that their cavalry is slightly chaotic because like the greek terrain is not made for horses cavalry was was pretty new to greek armies like philip is the one who really pumped that up um so there were a lot of things like that that I appreciated. The mosaic of Achilles um, dragging Hector's body that's in um, mm-hmm. Olympias in Alexander's room. Um, that was very cool. Uh, but it's like, I don't know. They also do things like they quote the Aeneid at the beginning of this movie. Like, <laughs> this this phrase existed, sure, but why are we quoting a story about the founding of Rome mm-hmm. that was written 300 years after <laughs> Alexander. <laughs> if you want to quote an ancient work, the Aeneid is not the one <laughs> mm-hmm. for this movie. I, so I don't know. I f- yeah, I feel like the sort of taking Alexander as a whole person, as opposed to just a military hero. I really like that. Um, and I do appreciate these small touches, but, yeah. um, this is not a movie I will be rewatching. No. Yeah, for sure. No. <laughs> um, I like, I, I mean, I, I agree with y'all. It, it's nice to see a movie that's not just like, oh, look at this murder machine. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that it actually focuses way more on his relationships with, like, his generals and Hephaestion. And, uh, and like, I do like that the the generosity that we see from him in the movie seems to be based in, like, reality. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, I do think they did a good job with that. But, um, God, it's weird. And then I... I don't know if it's the theatrical cut or just the extra bits that I got, but parts of this movie are really terribly shot. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, I, w- I will say, um, I, I, I think generally liked Colin Farrell's performance. I think he did a good job, especially like later on when you see him, there's like a lot more paranoia mm-hmm. and like he's, he's got a lot more like crazy eyes going on. Um, I think he sells that pretty well. Uh, do love the horse. Beautiful horse. Yes. Uh, don't like seeing it get hurt. Do like seeing that it exists. Um, yeah. And then I I do have a question. Okay. Um, how did I, Macedonians, Greeks bury their dead? Uh, it sort of depended. Um, but the, the method we hear about the most in literature is, um, you, you burn the body on a funeral pyre and then Mm -hmm. you collect the bones and ashes and put those in an urn and you bury that. Oh, okay. Now, everyday people would probably not have had the, um, resources to do that. Mm -hmm. Probably would have just been like pretty normal burial. Um, but for, um, yeah, for more privileged members of society, that's often what happened. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you, do y'all have anything else that you want to say? I think we should rate this baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm giving this two out of 10 Alexandrias. Mm. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to rate it um, two out of five war elephants. Mm. Oh, okay. good choice. I'm going to give this uh, one out of four wives. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. This one was a struggle, you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh man. Well, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Th- this is the end of season one. We'll be back eventually, um, and and we'll give you all some advance notice when when we are going to be coming back. But thank you so much for listening to season one. Yeah, this has yeah. been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to do. Uh, Sarah, I appreciate all the work that you've put Absolutely. into Thank you. In all the research. Oh, thanks, guys. It's been fun. It's fun it, to, you know, my job isn't classics anymore, so it's mm-hmm. it's fun to talk about this stuff in a low-pressure environment as opposed yeah. to a grad school environment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. folks, until we're back for season two... You can find us on Facebook at Grease Lightning Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Greased Light Pod. You can send us an email at GreasedLightningPod at gmail.com. And that's uh, gre- Greased, by the way, is G-R-E-E-C-E-D. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back. Thanks for listening.